Hi, and welcome to a small, medium at large podcast. And I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. Today, we have a very special guest, Deborah Lynn Katz. Deborah Lynn Katz has a PhD in psychology with an emphasis in human consciousness and society and holds a master's degree in social work. She's a former US probation officer and legal advocate for victims. She is also the director of the International School of Clairvoyance, ISC, one of the first schools of its kind to offer successful distant training programs via teleseminar and webinar. Deborah is an accomplished clairvoyant, remote viewer, medium and energy healer who works for some of the leading business manufacturers, stockbrokers, and whose clientele includes some of the top celebrities in the nation. Several of her students from the past two decades have gone on to start successful professional intuitive related businesses. She has been conducting remote viewing and parapsychology research for a number of years and worked and studied in the Ingo Swan remote viewing archives for three years at the University of West Georgia. She is the author of the landmark books, The Complete Clairvoyant, a trilogy, You Are Psychic, The Art of Clairvoyant Reading and Healing, Extraordinary Psychic Proven Techniques to Master Your Natural Abilities, and Freeing the Genie Within. Her newest book, just released this June, Associative Remote Viewing, The Art and Sciences of Predicting Outcomes for Sports, Financials, Elections, and the Lottery, and Unpacking the Popular Psychology Controversy to be released November 1st, 2021. She is also a former TV show host of The Psychic Explorer, which aired for three years in Sedona, Arizona on two local channels. She is also a film school graduate and writer and director of short films and documentaries. While Deborah is a talented and popular clairvoyant medium psychic remote viewer, she is perhaps more unique in her belief that all people have the innate potential to tap their own intuitive powers. She works around the clock to continue to improve her own intuitive abilities and those of countless others, convinced the most of humanity has not even come close to realizing their true potential. She presently resides in Mapleton, Oregon, and we're looking forward to speaking with her now. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, Gail. Thank you. That bio's a little log, isn't it? Actually, I, you know, <laughs> I, I met you some years ago and I had no idea until we started reading this how many things you've accomplished and how long you've been in the field. You're amazing. I mean, 25 years is an amazing thing. And I have some questions I want to ask about that, but I first wanted to sort of start at the beginning because I find it very interesting with, with other people also watching and listening. They, they all want to know, was this something that happened in your childhood? Or we know that you're a twin and I know there's situations where twins seem to be more psychic. A lot of studies have been done on twins and things, the things that happen like one twin is maybe in New York and they, they hurt their ankle and the other twin is in Texas. And she says, my foot hurts, but I don't know why. So I was wondering if that was really your beginning or if you could shed some light on what your childhood was like. And also were your family sort of accepting of these things or they just said, oh, that's just the twins. And what was that like? Yeah, well, in a lot of ways, they were always saying that's just the twins. So I think you were a fly on the wall back then. But, 
But my mother was open to these topics at the same time. She would take us to the library and was open to us getting books out on the subject. And we even became members of the Theosophical Society when we were just about 11 years old or so, where you you could order materials from their library and they would send you things about Madame Blavatsky and and all sorts, Alice Bailey, and all sorts of writings that even now I can barely understand what they're talking about. But you know, you got little glimpses into how to meditate and just how to try to be the best person that you could be on a spiritual level. So that was really helpful. We, we had a lot of spontaneous experiences where just like you say, we would know what the other one was feeling at a distance or, you know, so you might just start to feel like really sad or, or really scared about something and then find out that the other one was going through something. And then we also really noticed that quite often almost anything that I was about to say, if she was around, she would say it first. And now some of that could have just been because we were raised in a similar environment. So, you know, we're naturally going to be thinking similar things, but it really got to be almost crazy where it was like, okay, should should I try to say this really fast? Because if I don't, she's going to say exactly what I was going to say. And it just, and then I, I was like, well, was that my thought or was that her thought? So we had a lot of that going on. And we even communicated with each other in our dreams a couple of times where she was just lying there. And I, I would just start to send her a message and then she would wake up and be able to repeat what I had just done. So there were enough experiences like that where we knew for sure something was going on, this stuff was real, but we never imagined that we'd be able to control it or you know, enough where you could actually get information in an intentional way. But then when I was in my late 20s, I, I came upon the Berkeley Psychic Institute first. And then after that, about 10 years later, I started to train in remote viewing. And these are two very different psychic modalities that I learned. One was learning how to read people using symbols and just kind of speaking face to face or over the phone, but with very little information up front. And then the other one is, you know, remote viewing there. There's many different approaches to remote viewing, but that was more where you're not reading people, but you're you're writing on paper and you're tuning into locations and objects and photographs and things like that. And, but with both of them, I realized that there are definite, definite steps and methods and, and visualizations and, and approaches that you can take to bring the information forth on a psychic level and, you know, do it in a more controlled way, intentional way, and sometimes actually get information on demand. And so that's really that realization that continues to grow within me as I just see so many other people being able to, you know, go from not even having any idea if they could control their psychic abilities to being able to and, and, you know, demonstrating really high skill that has at least to this date, I feel like is my life mission to get out the word that we have so much more potential in these areas, all of us than anyone realizes. 
So well, that's a very, very valuable service that you're offering because it's really much needed in the world. And especially now with things where people have been spending more time alone or more time uh, uh, because of the pandemic, not being able to socialize as much with people, they're really, you're giving them also a form of knowing that, hey, you can still reach and touch people in other ways. You don't have to actually physically be there with them. Exactly. People are so much closer than we we realize. There are many times they're way too close. You know, not, <laughs> maybe not on a physical level that we can see, but energetically, emotionally, we, we can so easily merge and intermingle with other people. And so much of what we may be feeling and thinking and on a positive level, so much of our creativity could be coming from even other people's ideas and and thoughts and then on the downside is yeah we might be feeling depressed or tired or in pain and it really is picking up on someone else yeah myself uh i have a lot of experiences with and in fact that's where i learned true connection knows no distance that was my title for this learning and uh i experience when some people who are close very close to me I experience their physical death as they're dying. I'm experiencing what's going on for them, even though I have no information that they're dying or sick or anything like this necessarily. And um, my first boyfriend or, you know, your first love, uh, Ricky, he was um, diagnosed with AIDS in the mid 80s when AIDS was, you know, just starting to ramp up everywhere and they really didn't know a whole lot about of it about it. And I was in the cooking school in Hong Kong and I was carving, uh, we were learning about carving pagodas out of carrots, but you, you were not gonna get to do that. You were making little flowers and small things. You have to be a master to be able to do the pagodas. And I'm sitting in, the, in there and all of a sudden I can't breathe. I have to get out of there. And I say, my friend Ricky just died and everybody's looking at me and I go and I pray and. Buddhist temples all over Hong Kong. And back then we had no uh, cell phones. So I called my uh, husband. He said, no, you know, his mother would have called you if anything happened. And I said, you know, I spoke to him right before I left on this trip and he was all energetic and happy and sounding great. I never thought he would just, you know, die a couple of weeks after I just spoke to him. And he said, I'm sure he's fine. You know, we'll hear from them. And it wasn't until six weeks later when I returned home from school and, and travel in Asia that I found out by letter of his mother that he had passed away the day I had said, and he had passed away exactly like I experienced, which is loss of breath because he had taken a, a morphine cocktail to um, uh, you know, finish the suffering that he was having. Oh and so God. I was confirmed with all the things, the dates, even though for six weeks, I, and it was one of those things where I was so convicted, I had a conviction, I was sure this had happened. Nothing anyone could tell me would show any different. And those have happened many times. Uh, and it's not exactly what you want to experience, but I have no control over that. It just comes. And so when that finished, I realized that connection knows no difference. It does knows no distance. We don't know, we can be 8,000 miles away and still feel the pain of a close family or friend member. And, yeah. and that's and important. When that, when that happened, so you, you felt trouble breathing 
And did anything, did you like just immediately like get a picture of him or think of him or like how, do you remember how the connection came with him? Yes, the connection was, I could feel him and I could feel like I was assisting and going with him as he was passing. And I felt this before with other people and I sort of feel I stop at a certain line and then they go, they go on. But I feel like somehow they've called me to come by their side while this part is happening. It's happened to me since I'm a, a young child, dying people would want me to come and sit, you know, neighbors, they'd say, oh, could you send your daughter over? Wow, really? <laughs> and I would just sit there and I wouldn't really know why, you know? <laughs> so, but the important message of that is that we are all connected. And even if it isn't our, our first love or someone that matters to us, the pains that are going on in this world, we're all feeling. The, and the things that are going on with people who are sensitive, they're experiencing it. And people who don't want to can open up and realize how connected they are to each other, that we are one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was thinking about that this morning because you know, right now we often hear people expressing anger about what's happening, you know, whether it's anger about having to wear masks or anger about not people not wearing masks and all of that. But I was thinking today how so much of it underneath it is just grief, just grief about what we've lost in the last year and how, when, you know, just going out to the grocery store and walking around with so many other people that, you know, it's, it's, it's just sad. We're, we're all in the middle of, in some ways, watching parts of our life, not, not just the people that we miss that we don't get to see or visit with, but just parts of what's been familiar to us are just going away. And on so many different levels, there, there's just all this change. And, and maybe some of the change will be really great, but there, there's still a grief in that. And when you put an entire nation or entire world in that soup, there's just, it's gonna, gonna be so intense, especially when you go out in public. Well, I just read a, I won't be able to quote it exactly right, perfect, perfect words, but it was a Hopi elder who just made it a page commentary about what's going on. And one of the things that he wrote in the middle of it was, look back at history at what we Native American people have lost, what the African American has lost, what you know, uh, indigenous cultures and things have lost. He said, but you know what? It never stopped us from drumming. We still drum, we still dance, we still celebrate. We still remember joy, even after all of that that has happened to our cultures and our, 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 our families. And he said, this is what you need to remember to be doing now, is to remember your joy. Bring in your joy where you go, when you go to the grocery store, when you go out to these places, go with remembering the joy inside of you and sing and dance and drum. And I think being in touch with nature, all those things are things that help us go through this particular time and also to reconnect because nature is always here. It doesn't disappear. Yeah. And, you know, and we can relate to trees and grass and mountains and sun and all the things that, you know, Native American people may be praying to right now. Yeah, that's such a good point. And just connecting to our own selves because 
so many people now finally have the time that they've been longing for. They they can work from home. They they don't have to always be getting up nine to five working. And so yeah, it's it's reconnecting to yourself for sure. And also it's brought some families more together where there are a lot of parents and children who didn't get to spend time with their children, whether it's famous actors or, you know, people's lives who take them away from their home all the time. They got to be with their families and some of them are realizing I should have been with my family. I should spend more time with my children. This is really what's important. So I think there's a silver lining in this heavy cloud that we have right now. And I was wondering, I know you do predictions and things. Was this something that you were called upon to um, talk about before this has all occurred? Or did you have any feelings about this all coming about? You know, about five months before this happened, I I had a day where I was having a really bad headache. It was a bad migraine. And I just laid down and just intuitively tried to tune into what is this pain in my head because it was so intense and I had this vision of this black blobby thing falling down from outer space and the words written over it were black death and I was like black death what that's that's the virus that you know killed millions and millions of people so long ago and so, and I actually put it up on my Facebook page because I was like, I think this is actually like a prediction of something to come. Now, I don't know why on that day it, you know, had this impact on my head. I would say this was sometime if COVID hit around January, 2020, this would have been around August. So I, I put that on my Facebook page and then not to maybe sometime around the start of the pandemic, I'd totally forgotten I had put that up there. And a woman I know who's a remote viewer, she wrote that when I had put that up, she had tuned in to see like what might it be because you know when we have we have some kind of vision, other people can tune into our same vision and then continue get get information about it. And she also saw a pandemic coming as well. So, so that was interesting. And then at the start of it, sometime around January, when this was just very, we barely knew in our country how many people had it, I just started doing COVID readings based every other day or so and keeping a log. And one of the things that really helped me, I feel like just protect myself is in the early days, they were saying that you could not get this through the air. So if you were outside, like you, you would not get it. But when I tried to tune in to see why it was so bad in Italy, it was, it was worse there than anywhere else. Initially, I saw people standing outside and I could see all these particles in between the people and it was hanging out between the people and above their heads, not really high up, but maybe about six inches to a foot above their heads. And when, and I had such a clear image of that, I said, my gosh, you know, this is contagious and it's contagious even when you're outside, if you're really close to people. And, you know, sure enough, it came out maybe a couple of weeks later that that was the case, but I was extra careful because of that. So there were just things like that where, and then I would just kind of track how it was going to be going just so I could make choices in my own life and you know, help, help others. So, 
this this yeah. brings up the point of how when we develop either naturally or through um, classes or courses, when we develop our intuitive side or our gut level or our you know our psychic, we are then able to do things like what you're saying, which is get warnings to you know if you can listen to your inner voice. Some people have stopped listening to their inner voice. And if they can start listening again, it becomes stronger and stronger. It protects you, whether it's your higher self or whatever you, God, or whatever, the, whatever your spirits, your angels, whatever the word is you have for it, it's there to protect you. And all we have to do is be open to it and listen. And you're listening and you're getting wonderful information that's protecting you. And there's your proof right there. Yeah, you know, so many people are like, well, what's the point of, you know, doing all this and spending time with it? And, you know, aren't there more important things in the world than developing intuitive abilities? And it, yeah, in, in many ways there are, there's starving people and we need to, you know, help them and, and, and fix the environment and everything. But, but our intuitive intuition is, it it's related to everything like every moment of our lives or just about we're trying to access information about the world around us about ourselves we we have inquiring minds and and anything that we would want to know we can there's so many different ways to know things and our own intuitive faculties are definitely one of them i really don't think that we are meant to be just stumbling around in the dark, confused, without knowing every moment either what's what is happening or what's going to happen next. And somehow in our society, in Western society, it's been developed that people people think they're such closed systems, and in many ways they want to be closed. They don't, you know, we're taught you're not supposed to let people know your true feelings. You know, you're supposed to have a smile on your face or something like this. So people don't know what's going on with you. Why, why is that? How did we ever get there that we're just supposed to kind of look like statues with each other unless we're really happy? Well, I think some of that, because I'm not, uh, I'm not one of those actually. I'm one with unfortunately no filters. So I have no idea when I'm interviewed or what I'm going to say. And then I'm like, oh God, did I say that? You know? <laughs> so I've had that issue of never, never, never having a filter when you're supposed to. <laughs> but from what I get, at least from, you know, everybody is different. But from my personal thing, the reason I think it's more that way for me, and I talked to Dean Radin about this in the beginning when we started working together in 1998 because he was showing me things about myself I didn't know when he'd asked me to do these different experiments. I'd say, I didn't know I could do that. And so I said to him, how could I do these things? How come I can just do this? And he said, because you have no filters. And that was the first time I realized I had no filters. I really hadn't noticed. And then he said, I said, well, that's right. I said, I didn't continue on in education because my father was against schools and education. He felt that life was your education and school was a brainwashing institution. So of course, being rebellious, I excelled and did, you know, was in the gifted program and all these things. And then I'd come home and my dad would say, I don't even want to see the report cards. I don't care, you know? <laughs> wow. And then he was raised in a, they weren't Orthodox Jews, but they were, you know, somewhat religious Jews in his family. He wasn't allowed to speak English, only Yiddish. And, uh, 
he decided that he would raise us as atheists. So we were raised with no religion. There was, I, I stopped going to school when I was 15. And I think that there's something to that where I'm not saying people should drop out of school or not have religion, whatever works for you is correct. But I think some of those uh, forms or some of those ways of teaching make you put up filters and you end up not letting things come through because maybe in the religion they said that's evil. If you hear voices, you're crazy. You know, those, you know, that's not necessarily from religion. That's from if your class psychologist talks to you and you say to them, well, yeah, of course I hear voices. And yes, I see things. They were ready to put me away, you know? <laughs> so going to your school really wasn't the place to discuss those things either. So I think being able to live more, um, freely without being having shoulds and shouldn'ts made it easier for me to have access at that time to my, whatever comes naturally to me in the worlds of intuition. And mm -hmm. I don't know what other, you know, then there's other things that happen that traumatize people that, you know, they get scared from an experience. They see an apparition maybe after someone in their family died. And after that, they're like, they don't want to talk about those things ever again. So there's quite a few things I think that get in the way for people. Yeah, that's so cool though. You're a living case study of someone who wasn't brainwashed through education. And I know you were a flower child because I know you're on the cover uh, of the album for- um... Oh, no, no, I wasn't on the cover. That's not me. <laughs> I did a movie. You were... I did a movie, yeah, but I'm not on the cover. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love you, flower child. <laughs> but you were at Woodstock. Yeah. And I was 14 and, you know, I went with four guys and not a lot of parents allowed their children to do things like that. Also, my dad was involved in the Theosophical Society then. We lived with the, the pres president of the vegans in 1962 in the first commune. So there was a lot of alternative things happening. I mean, my babysitter was a Hindu monk. Who has a Hindu monk as a babysitter that's sitting there doing yoga and reading cards? I mean, I was exposed to card reading in 1962. And I was, you know, I was seven years old, six, no, six years old. And he would say, hold up the card. And every time he would tell me what it was. And I was like, wow, you know? <laughs> so that was, we also had people that came that saw UFOs and, you know, 1962, this, it wasn't a lot of people that were coming to talk about things like that in your home, but that's what we had in our home. Wow, that is so <laughs> cool. No wonder you're an anomaly. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the upbringing. It was very crazy and wild, but I'm very grateful for it because I do feel it makes who you are today, the things that happen. Did you have any traumas in your childhood or was it a pretty smooth going, kind of nice, kind of a happier environment? Well, I, I had issues with my father. He was, he was oftentimes just an angry person or kind of sad person and he would he, he we didn't get along so well because I would tell him he needed therapy or to go talk to a psychologist <laughs> and that doesn't go over very well when you're nine years old right <laughs> so, you know there was no physical abuse except that he would kind of chase me around the house and stuff but there there was definitely um definitely tension you know it just well, things like 
our, our dinner time wasn't very fun because he was always sitting there being critical of everyone. So, and then my parents got divorced and things got a lot better when I was about 15. So I, I would say, you know, there were some difficulties like that, but, but compared to so what so many other people go through, you know, not, not so much. Um, you know, I, I would say too that we, uh, after my parents were divorced, we really, really didn't have a whole lot of money either. So I started working at, you know, while well, I was babysitting from the time I was 10 or so, but I would say just always having to, to work and, and kind of support myself at a young age, I think it just gave me, introduced me to a lot of different experiences and, you know, always, always searching for that ideal job. And um, so now it's pretty cool because one of my jobs now has been really for 25 years, I've been doing readings for people. So it's pretty cool that, you know, my job is going into my bedroom, sitting down on my bed, closing my eyes and just getting to hang out with such cool people. You know, so many people like yourself. I think I'd like to sign up for that. Yeah, other people and and then I get to experience all these visions coming in and and talking to guides and so every time I go to do my work I get to be on an adventure. I feel like, you know, I'm I'm going on a trip somewhere and what am I going to experience today in addition to being knowing that I'm able to help people. So that's that's pretty cool. Right, being of service I feel is the number one uh, thing that we should focus on, on being of service to others, which brings me to another topic I want to ask you about. Um, first of all, you know, you have really accomplished a lot. You have done so many things in the field and you've been there now for 25 years. You don't look old enough right now to be BB there for 25 years, but I believe you. <laughs> I'm 53. So oh, I, I'm you don't look it. Yeah. <laughs> so this is I want to get on just one sort of controversial issue here because it's something that I've been in in my, myself in my life like I became a produce buyer when I was 18 years old so I had no education I started going to the produce markets at three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't get anyone to take my order because I was a woman wow. and even though I was you know I was 18 maybe I looked like I was 20 or whatever it didn't matter women didn't buy produce, only Italian men and men, you know, they're, they're, they're burly men or whatever, but these kind of guys. And when I go down there, I, I would say I'd like to buy a thing of strawberries. I'd like to buy lettuces. They would just walk away like I was vacant. I mean, like I didn't exist. And so I broke into this field that women were just not allowed in. And it took me by the second year of being a buyer, I could sign my name for thousands of dollars of produce, but it took a year of battling with these men to finally get, you know, they'd screw me and give me all the moldy fruit and I'd have to come back and say, you screwed me, you know? <laughs> so I learned really, and it's a rough group down there. They have a bar in the middle. So the men are drinking in between. Well, my friend, Jean Malay, was the per was a de very dear friend of mine who passed away a few years ago. And she had been in this field for many, many years. She brought a light sculpture to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to show people how with their mind, they could make the lights light up and make art. And she worked with Yuri Geller during the time when he was published in Nature Magazine. 
She worked with him during SRI. She did all these things and was the psychic on the other side. But her name was never in any of the experiments. Her name was never mentioned in nature or the books. She, you know, when I was with her, she was in her 80s. And she was like, well, you know, it's the past now, whatever. But it seemed like she was in a field, which I believe is the field that you're in and doing very well, where men were dominant in the field. And she was like doing as much of the work as Yuri Geller was doing, but she was not even given a name in these papers. So I was wondering what it was like for you from 25 years ago till now, and how has it changed or progressed? And did you feel any of the kind of feelings like I felt in the produce market, where she felt when, you know, she wasn't angry, but she was disappointed that she wasn't acknowledged. And I think validation and acknowledgement is important when you're doing this work. And especially most of it is often volunteer with no money involved. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, definitely in the areas of research and and um, I I didn't realize it till recently. And, um, you know, I would say overall, I've been very fortunate because I've had a lot of mentors in in the area of remote viewing where, you know, I, I it, sometimes it was a little hard because mentors, uh, many were older male researchers and you know they have just older men oftentimes have a different way of speaking than women do you know they have different attitudes approaches they may be more confrontational or just you know they're just not all they're not like us i'll say so you know i've i've had to and you know whether we're talking about remote viewing instructors or remote viewing researchers or parapsychologists so first i've had to get used to the different different communication style. Um, I've had to get used to just, and I think this, they communicate in similar ways with each other. Uh, and, you know, I think where at first when I was just the student and, you know, didn't know anything and, you know, they're the, the mentor, then, you know, like everything's comfortable. But I've noticed with a couple, not not all, so many people have been so gracious, I can, you know, contact anyone and they respond back really, really quickly. But but there's been just a couple where I've seen like, as you know, maybe my work has progressed um, that they've felt threatened. And again, I'm just thinking it's almost maybe not fair to talk about it because there's just a couple, you know, with kind of bigger egos who just, just it's hard for them for to see me as an equal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways, you know, can you ever equal someone who still has, you know, 25 years, you know, life experience. But I think that, um, you know, is it because I'm younger? Is it because I'm a female? Is it because I'm blonde? Is it, you know, what, whatever it is, there, there's all those things. But, you know, overall, I'm okay with that. The only thing I have a hard time with is, and, and again, it, you know, it's so hard when you have an experience, like it's easy for me to think, well, this is because I'm younger and female in the same way, like a, a black person may, you know, it may very well be that someone's treating them because they're black, or it may be because in that moment, that's how they would treat, you know, many other people. So you can't always tell, but when I've submitted papers for peer review, I've had 
I've had just such nasty comments at times come back. I mean, just like rude and demeaning. And, you know, they knew my name was on the paper. They, so I didn't know who they were, but they knew who I was. And just, just really almost like name calling and things like that. And I just couldn't help but feel that maybe it did have to do with being female, being younger, being obviously, you know, just a newer researcher. So all of that, it's, it's, it just feels like there's a lot of obstacles to get past. And I, I could go on and on about that. But, well, you know, Ingo, you, I think you knew Ingo. Yes. I, 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 in fact, well, I met him, uh, Russell brought me to meet him at his uh, uh, place. It was at the Bowery. And um, when I first came in, Russell hadn't told him he was bringing me and my husband there. And so Ingo got very annoyed that I was there. So he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't speak to me. And we're sitting there at this table in his basement with all these amazing um, paintings of the, you know, the, the cosmos, the planets. It's unbelievable. And his libraries of books. And after about a half hour of being ignored, <laughs> I'm not sure what happened, but somehow we clicked. And he opened up and we became friends then. And um, he said something to me that I totally forgot about till years later. When we left, he turned to me and he said, you know what the problem with you is? You're a shaman and you don't know how to act like a shaman. You don't know how to be a shaman, but that's your problem. And I had never occurred to me that I wanted to ever be a shaman, you know, or whatever. But lo and behold, Sham, from that moment on, shamanism came into my life and has been there ever since to this day to where I was initiated in 2011 as a Buryat Mongolian shaman. And, um, and I find the work and the, connect to, the connection to spirit through shamanism has been really great for me. So I'm thinking here he was telling me what I was and should be. And I'm thinking, what is he crazy? You know, <laughs> but it was like he precognitively thought, saw what was going to come into my life. That's so walking. cool. I think of you as a shaman. I, I have since I ever met you. And ah, well, it was new to me. <laughs> and he, we were walking down the street together to get some groceries or something at the store. And another visit, I had come in, and a person walked by us like this. And when they walked by, you know, in New York, there's a million people walking by you. I just went like, woof, like that. And he turned to me and he said, "Yeah, they're gonna die." <laughs> street with somebody who could be in the same plane with me like that it was fantastic and then on another visit I said you know I want to bring him flowers I want to bring him flowers for his house and I was going there by myself and so I went to this florist in New York they're on every corner and there were all these flowers and I'm looking and I'm looking and I said oh this is him the Gerber daisy and I buy him this whole bouquet of Ger Gerber daisies and when I bring it in he looks to me and he said this is my favorite flower. And so when I grow them here at my house now, I have them in pots, I call them Ingo. <laughs> so I keep my Gerber daisies as my, my memory of him. And then after that, I had been the one who called and said, you know, you really should come to the remote viewing, uh, the IRVA, the International Remote Viewing Association. I said, they wanna honor you. He hadn't gone for years. Well, I was the phone call that convinced him to go. Really? So, yes, and I was very, he gave me, a, he, when he came into registration, I was doing registration for the conference then. 
was doing the registration. He came in and he blew me a kiss and he thanked me because all they wanted to do was honor him and have a reunion. And so I got to go with them to Hal Putoff's house and have this little barbecue and reunion. And it was really wonderful. So after that, he started to, his health declined as he was declining. So I would call him when I come to New York because all my family lives there. And he would be, you know, not up for visits and things. But I really loved the, the, the few interactions we had. And he was an amazing being. So I understand here that yeah. you studied all his writing and the archives of all his stuff. So what was that like? And did you yourself get to know him? Yeah, I didn't meet him when he was alive, but I, I feel like I've gotten to know him so well because I, I studied his archives. At, he, they're located where I was going to graduate school recently at the University of West Georgia. And then I've also had some intuitive or mediumship encounters with him. So I feel oh, very I connected to him. And I, I, the reason I brought him up was because in my studies, I did find that he oftentimes, even though he was very much respected as, as a psychic and, and definitely acknowledged for some of his contributions with being the father of remote viewing and, and coining that term, I really felt like he was not given recognition of the status he deserved as a scientist as a researcher, both experimentalists and social scientists. And so if, when you were asking about, you know, just maybe being in this field as, as a woman, and I, I was saying, well, you know, it could be being a woman or being younger, but it is also being psychic. So there's this idea, and, you know, we're, we're not talking about skeptics, per se, we're talking about even, you know, psychical researchers and parapsychologists, but there's this idea that there's this divide, there's supposed to be a divide between those who study these topics and those who are studied and who, you know, who, who engage in psychic practices. And so the idea that we as psychics would also be interested in research or doing it ourselves that is something that creates all this it's almost confusing like you know what's going on here and then it's all and then i think it creates some suspicion and fear because it's like oh well if you're psychic then you're obviously biased towards believing in these things well of of course yes i do believe in these things however i very much know that we could do a series of trials and and it, we could not get results you know sometimes we don't sometimes or you might, what tends to happen is there's a few people, if you've got 10 psychics or remote viewers, by the end of, let's say, 30 trials, you're going to have a few that did really well. And, you know, some that maybe had a few great sessions, but didn't carry that forward throughout. And then, you know, some who didn't consistently do so well. So, you know, there's going to be a range, but the, the thing is that it, parapsychologists, psychical researchers are always concerned about the larger perception within science. I first personally felt a little disturbed by my first remote viewings because I was doing a series of 20 and I was telling them things that I was getting marked wrong for. And they were uh, boats, people, and cars. And I would be seeing them in the photos then the photo would come up and you would just see this bridge or the scenery or whatever. And I'd be right about other things. 
but I'd be so disappointed that, God, I was sure there was a woman there or a, there was a car going across this. And then I found out that Ed May had coded these specifically so that they were a better uh, target for a, ro a remote viewer. So he re erased these boats and cars and people out of the pictures. And oh, those are the ones that I would be seeing. You know what? I worked with I worked with him and his target pool and in our new book on associative remote viewing I have a whole chapter in there about my experience working for a year on those targets on it was a National Geographic target pool yes and the exact same thing happened where I was sure that I was seeing somebody like sitting outside at a table outside in this courtyard and it let me know it was an enclosed area like a courtyard but there were people there and he had told me he had told me uh the the target pool does not contain people transportation devices but i was still getting them i would report it and then one day i looked closely at the feedback photo and you could see you could see a head and some shoulders and I thought, oh my gosh, they weren't saying that they they found photos without these things. They had these things in the photos and then they Photoshopped them or whatever they were doing in the, what, the 70s or 80s. Right. They, they erased them, but not even very well. So they are still in there. And you know, to me, that speaks to the mindset of not understanding that we when we are are doing this work, we are not just tuning into the photograph itself. We're tuning into what's actually there. You cannot cleanse, uh, if, if people are at a location, you can't cleanse their imprint, the, the fact that they were there. You know, Even if they're still not there, I mean, it, it does then speak to, are we going to the past or to the present? I mean, people are probably in those locations even now, but let's say they were in the past, you're still going to have a sense of people there and you know what they were it's it's just like i had i was living in georgia for a short time and i had some students tuning into my house and they were getting a sense of of war like at, and, and they didn't know where i was at at the time um in one one particular a project I was doing with people, they didn't know I was even in Georgia at the moment, but they were tuning into Confederate uh, wars and, and the Civil War and, and all these battles. And I was like, this has nothing to do with the target. And then I realized that they were picking up on the neighborhood because we were in a place where there had been a battle. And so that really showed me that traces of what's happened in the past are, are still present. And it can be really hard for people to just separate that out from what, what's continuing to, or what's physically present there. But did it, for me, it gave me a feeling like I'd been fooled or something where, I, you know, like I, I was doubting my, what I was seeing because then when the photo came up, it wasn't there. And I was like, and then what kept happening over and over, I said, how could that be? And I just assumed I was doing it incorrectly until I brought it to the attention and then found out, you know, at the end of the 20 sessions that, oh, oh, of course we've, and I was like, oh, I, you know, <laughs> I had no idea. It wasn't, so I, it wasn't you, it was, it was them. <laughs> and that's where you know that you've done this uh, enough and your confidence is high enough 
where you're in the middle of a project and something is going wonky and it's like, okay, what are they doing? Like, I know this is not, because we're not just oftentimes tuning into the photograph or the, the target, we're tuning into behind the scenes. What is the researcher doing? What are they up to? What are they not doing? And, and then that's where they get a little upset if you start calling them out on things. And in and, and one project, I, I would write to the researchers and I would say, you know, I'm, I keep getting that there's issues with the computer program. Like, is there some kind of computer glitch going on? And they would never admit it, admit it but they, they would respond to everything else. But anytime I said, did something happen with the computer? Cause something seems wonky here they wouldn't admit it. And then I found out other people who were using the same computer system, but other researchers were having all sorts of problems with, with this system. So, you know, well, it's, that's the other thing. It's like researchers want you to be psychic about what they want you to be psychic about, but not about them. And that's <laughs> Well, this is what's the beauty of, of you and being Deborah Lynn Katz is that you're both so you are representing the research side. You are writing all these fabulous books. You are also a subject and a teacher. So all of these things combined, it makes you a really full package, which brings me to your latest book because I wanted us to give some time to that. And I think what I would like is since I'm not sure what listeners and viewers have in their knowledge about remote viewing, I was wondering if in a short sentence you could explain the remote viewing and then go into exactly what we're talking about, which I personally have never understood the protocol of associative remote viewing. And if you could explain how that's done, and I know listeners want to know the question that they ask us all. I've been asked this, you know, since I'm 17 when I'm doing remote distant healing. So if you're so good at this, how come we can't win money? How come you can't go gambling? How come you can't win the lottery? And I always find that sort of a I don't really like that particular challenge because it involves with, so I'm sitting here telling you about things about life and now you want to know about how to get money. <laughs> but there are practical uses for these things. And I would love if you could share this about the upcoming book here that you've just released. I, I saw it's on Amazon, so I know it's available now to be bought. Yeah, well, and you know, I say to those people, why do you think people aren't using this to win money? They they are, and I am sure they have been for centuries. You know, whether they're consciously using it or just subconsciously, you know, having a hunch about making a prediction on a particular stock or choosing certain lotto numbers, how or you know, a card when you're playing poker or a certain horse. There, there are so many people who will say that they did use their intuition or they had a dream about it, even if they didn't, you know, they don't have formal training or they wouldn't call themselves psychics. But then there are people who have been working with these topics for years to, to get the lotto numbers, to get the horses, to get their statistics up on stock trading. And there's so many different ways of approaching this and doing this. So this is what our book is about. We, we're calling it associative remote viewing because that is one, one approach to this work that a lot of people have been very engaged in and, and studying on a formal level and, and a lot of informal work is being done. And a lot of people, you know, we speak 
about the former US government remote viewing programs, and that's all very fascinating, endlessly so. But a lot of people aren't aware of how much great work is being done right now by so many different researchers, even if they're not all academically trained, they're very much doing research. And the thing about remote viewing, because you know, there's so much to this, and a lot of times people say, well, what's the difference between remote viewing and other psychic work? And really, it's the process, it's the protocol, it's how you, how you structure things, doing things in a way where you really don't know information up front about a subject. And then you, you, there's a lot of different approaches to try to get information about that topic. So just you asked about associative remote viewing. And again, our book is almost 800 pages long. So it's kind of funny to say, okay, well, can you just say this in one sentence? But <laughs> I'll do my best. So let's see. Can I say it in one sentence without? You don't have to. You can have three sentences. <laughs> so associative remote viewing is where you have two potential outcomes, and instead of looking using your psychic abilities to look at both outcomes directly, instead you associate something with those outcomes, such as a photograph. And then what you're describing is not the direct outcomes, but the photograph itself. There, that was one sentence. <laughs> and then I'll give a couple examples. So if you wanted to know which horse was going to win in a horse race, now horse races are complex because usually there's more than two horses. There's a number of horses. Now horses, as you know, look alike, right? They all have four legs. They all have a mane. They're, the horses look alike, although they're there are differences in colors, but so it could be if we wanted to just directly look at which horse, let's say we want to know which horse is going to cross the finish line. And I'm saying that in particular because I've learned the hard way. Like if you just say which horse is going to win, well, how do you define winning? Because a horse, one horse could actually cross the finish line first, but that's not the horse that yields the most money. You know, there's a whole formula about which it may be that the one that wasn't the favorite is going to produce the most money. So it depends what your final goal is. So I like to just say, okay, well, what's which one is going to actually cross the finish line first, if that's what I want to know. So then as a psychic who visualizes a lot, you know, I, I might get a sense of brown or I might get a sense of black or a sense of white, but what if there's four black horses, two brown and brown and black are pretty close and say there's two white horses. So if if it just happens to be a white horse, that's going to narrow things down. But let's say they're all brown horses running, well, that's going to be a challenge. So then maybe we could directly, again, if we wanted to just directly use our clairvoyance, we could say, well, maybe one jockey is wearing green and another is blue. But those those are, are colors that are close together. And again, jockeys, they all are small bone, they're, they're littler, most tend to be men, you know, so nothing is going to stand out that's going to help us distinguish unless we just happen to luck out. It's, you know, unusual. It's a female jockey on a white horse and a really the largest horse. Then we could do direct viewing. But if we want to do this, like over time, repeated trials, we need a way to circumvent those 
difficulties. So that's where the association part comes in, because if we want to open up possibilities and even have it where we can bypass our logical minds, because we don't want, we don't want, let's say the, the remote viewer or psychic to like use their logic if they know about the horses. We just want them to be intuitive. So we could say to a remote viewer, I'm going to show you a photograph that you're, and I'm going to show it to you on Sunday. And I, and so I want you to tune into this photo and tell me what you see. Now, if, if it's a photograph, it could be a photograph of anything in the whole world. So that really opens up what the what the photo could be about and what they may not even know. Sometimes they know the process, but sometimes they don't. Um, and they're not gonna know anything about the photo, but what they don't know is that one each photo is gonna be paired with a particular horse. So let's say there's a photo, one photo is of a river, an outdoor picture. And another photo is let's say of a building and maybe like indoor shopping center. These are two very different ones. So if someone describes elevators and people and stores and shopping bags, I know that that viewer is gonna be shown on Sunday that photo of the shopping mall and not of the river. And since I paired it already with one of the particular horses, that would tell me, well, if I'm only gonna send the remote viewer the picture that is paired with the winning horse and and I know they're going to see that then the win that means the winning horse is the one that I paired with the shopping mall now I can go and place a wager on it and then I just have to make sure to make this whole process work because this has like steps in the the present and the future I have to make sure that the only photo I send them on Sunday is attached to the winning horse hopefully if everything's gone well the winning horse is the predicted one attached to the shopping mall photo. So they get their photo and in a perfect tri ARV trial, it'll, it will have all worked out beautifully. And that's only what they described. So this is a way to make predictions based on what they're talking about. And it involves them receiving their feedback and creating this feedback loop. Now there's exceptions to this and, you know, there's different there's different types of uh, uh, or uh, derivatives of associative remote viewing and different kinds and people try different things because sometimes the problem with this process is that occasionally a remote viewer will describe the photo that's not attached to the winner but just an, the photo attached to one of the other options and so in our book we have two chapters talking about this. This is called displacement or displaced psi. And it's basically where that means where a psychic has done a good job describing the wrong thing. And I'm sure since you've been involved in parapsychology trials, even if it's not about remote viewing or associative remote viewing, a very common setup in most parapsychology trials is to have a remote viewer or a psychic participant, they're not always called that, but you know, it could be a dreamer dreaming something in the future or so, some kind of psychic task to tune into. Well, one of the ways that they evaluate how well they did was to take the photo that they were describing and put it with a set of photos and then see if another judge can pick out 
the photo that they were viewing from the set. And the set in that case has no other meaning. It's just there to see it's a matching task. You know, can a judge choose this photo from their descriptions versus another photo? But even in that case, sometimes the participants will will describe the wrong photo in that set. And it's not where they just have, you know, a couple vague impressions. It's where they may actually name the, the target, but it's not the one they were assigned. It's a different one. And then this totally screws up results. And the, the final assumption is, oh, well, if we didn't get good results, then there must not be psychic functioning here, where instead, that's not the case. It's just that the psychic functioning was not directed enough or it was too much. It was being psychic about everything in the trial. Is ARV, associative remote viewing, is this something that was being used at SRI when Ingo was there and they were doing remote viewing? Or is this something that came out of uh, different researchers years later that said, you know, we could go further with this. We could try a different form. How, how did ARV pop up? It, it was definitely, it, it came about from Stephen Schwartz, who was, he was not part of the military, but he was doing projects both with Ingo and, uh, and Edme and Halpudoff and so, and Russell Targ, they were all around at the same time. So, you know, you've heard, you know, Stephen and some of his big archeological projects that he did with Ingo. And, and he basically, for, from all my research uh, with, you know, pretty high confidence, we can credit him as the creator of this process. And, and then he initially tried it out on horse racing and then he led like a year long pro project, which was supposedly successful, but he says that the money was involved in people's emotions started getting pretty high and then things started to go downhill. But around that time, or I should say, starting in about, I think Russell Targ did his associative remote viewing, his first study, with I think it was about 10 trials, 10 to 12 trials. And that was where he made over $150,000. That was Silver Futures, I believe. Yes, exactly. And, and then they repeated the project and then things tanked the second time they, they did it. And mm -hmm. he felt the second time it didn't go well because the, the person financing the project got all excited about their initial success and wanted them to do more trials and put more stress on it. And, and, and there was also some displacement as we we're talking about, there were a couple of times where viewers described the, the wrong photo. So then he made some adjustments and repeated it again, but without actually wagering money, but just, just doing everything except for the wagering and their results went, went back up. And then Hal Pudoff also had success in 1984. He published a study where, where he also um, yielded uh, over $100,000. And Hal was 
um, with, uh, he was one of the original directors of the Stanford Research Institute, which was the research arm of the, the remote viewing programs in, in the government. So they were very much uh, the, if you look at any associative remote viewing study, it's always going to refer back to Russell, Russell Targ, Hal Pudoff, and Stephen as the, you know, initial people involved. And Ed May said that he also ran an associative remote viewing project while they were on a submarine engaged with Stephen's project where they were under underwater in a submarine. And the point of that project was to discover whether or not through shielding, remote viewers could still perceive a target because they were always trying to see what are, in those early days, what are the limits to remote viewing? So if you stick a psychic in a shielded room, uh, are they gonna be able to still, still get information about a target? They also wanted to know, not just because, you know, can remote viewers be good at these things, but they wanted to know what the Russians, because they had a, a psychic program, they wanted to know, well, what could psychics being used by other governments be able to do? So, you know, if we had information, could we protect it from them by putting it, you know, in a shielded room, put, put it underwater somewhere? So they were going to these great lengths to try to test this. And no matter what, the the psychics would still be able to describe a target no matter where they were. And pretty much it was concluded that no matter where you are, you cannot stop a psychic from being able to, to access information. Now there's still, there, these early researchers and people today continue to ask, well, are there environmental conditions? Um, you've probably heard of side, side, side real time or, or fluctuations with the moon or sunspots or things like that that could get in the way. And there's there's really contradictory information right there. So we I would say we don't really know how those might you know impact people. I personally I, I always find it interesting and it probably is because a, a lot of these researchers have been physicists or maybe male. But to me I'm like, you know, it is as a psychic or remote viewer, what's happening in my own house? You know, did I just have an argument with my spouse? Um, did I just get an upsetting email from a friend? Am I tired? Am I not feeling well? These things to me are going to have such more of an impact on how well I do than, you know, is there a, a spot on the sun? But some people would say, well, you shouldn't, you know, discount those external factors too. Well, I want to, I, I can back that up with definite fact because I would have a set date every, I think it was every Tuesday and I would go to interval research where Dean Radin and Russell Targ worked. And we would do a session in the morning, then Russell and I would go have lunch and then we'd come back and do one more session because I lived up here and I had to drive a hundred miles down there to do these. Well, some of the time, and I also had a young baby then, I was breastfeeding and, you know, so you get tired. Yeah. So one of the sessions, I think this happened twice, this happened, where I came there because we had our set time. So I would always show up and be there to do it, regardless of how tired I was. And I was so tired one day that when we went to do the session, 
I just affected all of the servers and, and computer equipment that was down in the basement. And this guy would come running up and saying, what is going on here? There's somebody that's jamming my system. <laughs> and sure enough, when I was tired and really not able to do the thing, I would somehow crash the machines and then you couldn't do the remote viewing because you had no computer connection. But the funny look on the computer guy's face when he'd come up there looking in the office, who's doing this? <laughs> and it would be you when you were in your tired state and probably- I, I didn't know. Yeah, I wasn't saying servers shut down. All I was saying was, I don't really think I could do this right now. I'm so tired. <laughs> That's very cool. And so you weren't put in the position of like having to do it. You just made it so nope. Exactly. <laughs> and I did it, you know, we had 20 sessions, you know, so it only happened twice, but it drove the guy in the, the computer, you know, the IT guy in the basement drove him crazy. He said, nothing else brings down my systems. I don't understand this because it was a big, it was research and development funded by Paul Allen, one of the richest men in the world. So this was all, you know, secret work. You know, I wasn't only allowed in certain areas and you had to sign non-disclosures or whatever. So this, you know, this was driving the man crazy. <laughs> I, I see we're getting on here in our time, but I wanted to, um, I had a couple other questions. I was wondering, there was one question I wanna ask you at the end about being a probation officer but I wanna just go a little further with your book because I think what you've written is either the encyclopedia or the how-to book for, eight, I mean, 800 pages that has to have every question you have answered in there, which is an amazing thing for you to have done work like that. I'm wondering, is there any kind of, like for our listeners out there who know, they'll know in the future in the descriptions and things, how they can contact and maybe take up a clairvoyance course with you or have a reading or do the different things like this. But I'm wondering, is there any short version or bullet pointed for things that you might be able to give our listeners on something they can work on if this is part of them? I've often sent them to the apps that Russell created that my husband made for him, you know, the ESP trainer or um, uh, Stargate ESP, which is a great tool but I was wondering if there was something you might offer them that before reading books, before signing up for classes might help them to just start to stimulate in their mind that, hey, of course I have these psychic abilities too. Yeah, well, there, there are so many simple things a person can do. I, you know, those apps you're talking about are fun. I don't do well on them because again, I'll tend to like they'll show you like four different pictures and say, which one were you describing? And I'll have a little bit of all of them, but there are so many things a person can do. And the reason why most people don't know they can do these things is because they just have never even tried or barely spent any time. So like we have a chapter in our book on direct viewing of graphs. So for example, when a client wanted to know if the stock market was going to go up or down. And he said, can you just see a graph, like the direction of the graph to match the graph on my computer? I had never done that before. Like, like you said, you know, just until you're put into a situation and said, do, do this, you don't know if you could do it. Exactly. So I had read, and this was not too long ago. I, I had read about these Chinese psychics where, well, 
don't remember if they're Chinese or Japanese, but they they um, would just sit down and say they they would sit down for, and close their eyes for like 45 minutes and they would just wait for an impression to come for 45 minutes. Now, usually I'm you know, not at all like waiting that long and I'm using different visualizations. But for this, I just I just thought, well, I don't know how to, you know, produce an image of a graph, but I'm going to just visualize a screen out in front of me like a reading screen. And then I set my alarm clock and I said, I'm going to just visualize this screen and I'm going to sit here for 45 minutes. And what I'm going to ask to have happen is some visual to come up and and I don't know where I came up with this, but I just said to myself, I'm not going to even care about if like my mind is like flashing on other things or if I'm distracted or if I have, you know, noise because I didn't even want to meditate first. I just wanted to see what happened. So I asked for the information when it came to come in a way that I would be able to discern it from all the other stuff in my head. And I was just determined, I'm just going to sit here and look at my reading screen. And I spent a little time like seeing it um, just light and then a little time seeing it dark because I wasn't sure what would be best. And then sure enough, a letter W wrote itself across my screen. I mean, it looked to me like a letter W and I wasn't expecting a letter. I was expecting a graph. So I just wrote that down. And then I, I looked one more time and I, I know that stock brokers or traders, they sometimes like to see what's going to happen like right before the at the end of the day when the trades being placed. So I looked one more time and I saw like a, a diagonal line going up and sure enough, the next day he sent me back his graph on his screen and it made a perfect letter W and he had taken what I it sent him and he juxtaposed it over his actual picture and he wrote the words wow with an exclamation point so so and and I'm sharing that for a reason not to be conceited but when yeah. after that experience I started to talk to other psychics and remote viewers and what uh, and John Knowles, my co-author of our book, he did as well. And what we started to find out is that other people had just recently started trying to do what we call direct viewing of graphs. And Julia Mossbridge, who you may know yeah. or have heard of, she's a, a neuroscientist and also really into remote viewing now. She had recently started that with a group of viewers she was working with. And they have a name for that and they call it wowzing, wowzing, because she said the reaction for whenever their viewers send their impressions off to their clients is to get a, a wow back from them. But the cool thing is they use a different approach. So whereas mine was really purely visual, I, I was not going to be happy unless I got this vision of it, theirs is much more somatic. So they're doing, I, I know you've heard of ideograms, at least mm -hmm. where um, that was something Ingo came up with where you get a target number and you just let your hand make a quick mark on a piece of paper and it bypasses, it bypasses your mind. And so you're not seeing something or hearing it, but you're just making a scribble. And then that can be representative of what's at the target. And so uh, Julia has been doing like a combination of just letting her hand like make a, a quick move 
or, or just like feeling it. So there's all these different approaches to, to getting information, whether you're trying, this is one other cool thing that people can try. I just did this with some students in my remote viewing class. I, I'd call it somatic experiencing or intelligence. So I had a target, my husband and I had been up to a racetrack a few nights before something I rarely do. And we were standing outside this racetrack with cars going around and mud was flinging everywhere. And I said, you know, this would make a great remote viewing target. So for my class, I gave them that target, but I said, you know, instead of like sitting here with your eyes closed or writing on a piece of paper, I want you to stand up and just stand up and just think of the target number. And then I just want you to notice what your body is going to do. So, you know, don't just, it may feel a little weird, but just whatever your body wants to show you, let it do. And, and we only had a few people in that class, but when they were done, I said, okay, what did your body want to do? And two of the three people both said, my body started going like this and I knew I was driving in a car, but I was going so fast. And there was, and they said, when they, everyone thought there was water around, which there was a water truck, like squirting water. And again, wet mud was flying. They didn't get the mud, but they got the sense of water splashing. So they were like, yeah, I'm driving and there's this water splashing. And that was what their bodies told them. So, you know, what are the chances of that? So I, I've, I've known about this for a while, but in fact, I had taken a class with uh, John Favanco who um, studied with Prue Calabrese, who studied with Courtney Brown, who studied with Ed Dames, who had studied with Ingo. So, you know, there's whole generations of people continuing to do this work. And the cool thing is that we get to learn from each other but the having been so orientated to clairvoyance in the visual aspect, you know, it's still becoming this real thing for me, like, wow, you could really have your body show you these things. And I really feel these are the same mechanisms that, you know, would cause you to like, just go left instead of right or move out of a dangerous lane of traffic or, you know, just where you find your body doing something that you weren't planning on it doing, but it just does. And that's that you know, higher intelligence. So, so I would just say to people listening to this, you know, just whether the, the thing is deciding what it is you want to focus on. I think this is the problem people have, because I'll have people who read my first book, You Are Psychic, who, that has a lot of meditation techniques. And they're like, yeah, I meditated, but I didn't get any psychic information. And I, I'm like, well, meditation, is, that's not what it's, it's for the thing is, if you want information, you want to know what you want information about. So you could take a, like a textbook, a, a kid's textbook, history or science is great. This is a, a really easy exercise. You could say, I want to see the picture on page 50 and just write down page 50, close your eyes, visualize a screen or visualize the, the page of the book and say, I just want some very the the most vibrant impressions to come through and i guarantee people that if they do this like th at least three different times they're gonna you know get some great hits maybe i shouldn't say guarantee but there's a high probability that most people who do a simple exercise like that will be able to do to do that um, i'll just give one more example when my son was younger he had a friend who didn't really believe in this stuff 
quite a few friends like that. And he, <laughs> he brought his little friend over and, and he's like, mom, so-and-so doesn't believe this. And I was like, okay, well, how about if you guys go find something that has a picture on it? And by the time you get back here, I'll be able to tell you what's on it before you show me. And now I did not, usually I, I'm someone who does like to take a lot more time. I, I don't necessarily think I can just like in a moment when a lot is going on tune in. I usually ha have to have some distance, but I was like, okay, I better do this really quick. And so I, I closed my eyes and I saw a Pegasus, like a, a dragon with wings. And they came back with his friend's book and the book had a Pegasus on it, on the cover. So he, he was pretty impressed with that. But my point <laughs> that is that, one. yeah, you know, when, when it matters, I, I think, you know, we can pull out that, that information. So yeah, you know, most people just don't sit there trying to do exercises like this. So it doesn't take a lot, but then but then there can be more to it. You know, there's just kind of tricks of the trade and ways you could direct your attention to, you know, be able to get more and more details. I think that's the thing is a, a lot of times people do these exercises and find, yeah, I did get a flash of something, but how do I get more? You know, how do I get more and more details? And that's where further training can help. It's not that complicated, but it's, it's useful to, you know, how to get as much details as possible. Well, I have to give you a big thank you because I picked your book up years ago before I ever met you. And I was so grateful that somebody wrote a book, you know, you are psychic. Yes, also I was so happy. I felt like it was a comfort for me when I came across your book. So I didn't know that I would end up interviewing you on a podcast years later or I'd see you in conferences, but I just wanna say how happy I am that your book was really my first connection to you. Ah, that's so sweet. Dean and I were talking about this. He has like a special skill about him where like, I know when I do it with him, it's always going to be perfect somehow <laughs> because he just allows you to be you. And it, somehow in that relaxed allowingness to just say, oh, you can see the picture. Tell me what you see. In his calmness, I feel like, of course I can do this for him. And it makes, we've had... No, 1998 till till to this present day, fabulous. Uh, you know, sometimes he calls me up and says, just tell me what I'm holding in my hand right now. And I describe it, he says 99.9%, I'm gonna mail it to you. And all of a sudden this lovely thing comes in that I had remote viewed. So that's a really wonderful, we have a wonderful relationship. Well, we have to wind down, unfortunately, because we don't want to be here forever, even though I could stay here forever I, all day. I'm happy to be here. Forever. I'm having such a good time with you. I want to find out, because this is my own curiosity. First of all, I think of you as this very beautiful, glowing woman. And I cannot imagine you as a federal probation officer. I'm trying to see you in a uniform with a hat on. And I, you know, I don't know if you had a gun, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what? I had the best uniform. I had to wear a suit and I had my very first suit was a pink bright pink silk suit and then I had oh. a matching blue one and I I weighed a lot less in those days I had the cutest outfits matching pink shoes matching blue shoes the, the this was I, I was in the federal building and so these were a federal 
uh, defendants and, and parolees, and they would walk into my office and look around and say, where's my probation officer? <laughs> and I'd be like, hi, it's me. Well, and they would be very surprised. I'm wondering there because like, I feel like all the things that I've read that you've done all really intertwine, including the probation officer, because all of these things, first of all, have to do with service of others. You get a PhD in psychology. So all of these things come together and you could be able to, I'm wondering if you had psychic things with some of these people, or if you felt, wow, there's a real dark energy here. I'm in my pink outfit. I'm gonna bring this and turn this into a positive situation. And they in turn had the experience, like you're saying, where they, that they said, I can't believe this is my probation officer. So you could have had a positive effect right then and there. Well, uh, a couple of things. So I, where I tie it in now is it was like doing research because a lot of what I did was investigations for the courts where I, I would put together a report to help with the sentencing recommendations. And then I would go and talk to the judge and I, I would do the investigations would involve interviewing the defendants. And so when I interviewed them, that was around the time, cause this was already now 25 years ago, I would be attempting to practice what I was learning in my psychic classes. So I would just be kind of, what I would do is just kind of picture my crown chakra where information can just kind of flow in on a knowing level or my clairvoyance. So sometimes I just kind of, you know, go like this and center myself right before I go into the room and ask for information to come in. And sometimes like in one case, there part of my job was I had to find out about their financial situations because a lot of these were at the federal level are financial crimes, fraud, uh, extortion, things like that. So money laundering. So I was talking to this one defendant in, in prison. I went to prison to interview him. His attorney was there and, and I'm asking him about his assets. And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm really broke. And I saw an image of three grand pianos. <laughs> I said to him, yeah, but what about all those pianos in your house? And he was like, how do you know I have pianos in my house? Have you been there? He was like, I didn't think anyone's been there. And so it was just things like that, that kind of helped. But the thing was that I really felt like, um, I was in the wrong field because I did want to be helping people and I would justify, and again, I, I only did this for three years, but I would justify it that I was helping society because some, some of these people are really harming. I mean, I saw one woman, she had basically like stolen the homes of all these old people because she got oh. them to sign over their homes and they lost them. There was no getting them back. So some of these people were really hurting other people. And so I felt like by doing my investigations, I was helping to protect society, but I really had to kind of stretch to feel good about it. And, mm -hmm. and at, um, after about two and a half years, they said, well, now we, you've had a chance to do investigations. Now we want you to be doing more supervision. And I really didn't feel comfortable, you know, telling people, no, you can't go get married in Hawaii or <laughs> your conditions of your release don't allow for that. And, 
you know, it just didn't feel good. So that was when I, I, I went through a whole bunch of different spiritual experiences and just got to a point where I was like, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, I gave up at that time. I was making $60,000 as like a 28 year old, which is, you know, was pretty good in those days. And I just, yeah, I just, just gave it all up and I didn't even know what I was going to do, but that was when I moved to the Philippines and started to study with faith healers over there and shamans. And, and that was really the start of when I came back, I was just like, okay, you know, I'm going to start to do my, my intuitive work now. And that's what led my son in the Philippines. I can see my son in the Philippines after being told I could never have any children. Oh my gosh. I call him my blessed, uh, my blessing. Um, But, uh, and also my father would make a joke. He said, yeah, you had to leave the United States and go somewhere where the sperms were still alive. (laughs) Well, did you know that my son was conceived in the Philippines too? No. Yes. I was at the Manila Hotel. Where were you? <laughs> oh my gosh, not not as swanky a place as the Manila Hotel. I had been I had been there, uh, but yeah, I was living well, in Baguio City, about about ten hours north of there. In in a well, I was in uh, Quezon City. Oh. So when I went from the, I, I had flown in and stayed in the hotel for like two nights before meeting uh, my boyfriend's family. And so I went from the Manila Hotel to roosters and a grass mat on the floor. And, <laughs> and I think buckets or whatever for, you know, for washing. And in fact, while I was there, I bought them their first washer and dryer because they were hand washing clothes with five kids. And I was like, no, let me buy you a washer and dryer while I'm here. And wow, that's a fabulous good. experience. But I came home with the blessing of that and it was when Marcos died. Marcos died during the time I was there. And in the United States, they were advertising in the newspapers how the country was in mourning and everyone was crying. I didn't see any of that. There was nobody crying over his death when I was there. <laughs> and I always got worried. Like I didn't want Marcos jumping in on this, you know. <laughs> but our life continues with the Philippines because. Uh, half of the family immigrated to my house while I, when I gave birth to my son. And I remember them all saying, we don't understand you're a well-off woman and you're not going to a hospital to have a baby? In the Philippines, we go to the hospital. I said, no, no, I'm having him at home in a bed. (laughs) They all thought I was crazy, but then after he was born at home, it was a beautiful gift for his dad who had five children. It was the only birth he'd ever experienced. He'd never you know, the woman has the baby, they come in it, whatever. But here he had to participate and cut the umbilical cord. And uh, he had quite the Philippine experience. And so now they're still in our lives because even though we're not together, their whole family and my whole family all consider each other as families. So we're invited to all the birthdays. They're all here. So we get to eat the lumpia and the adobo and just have a really, they're just such a beautiful, loving culture, the Philippine people. Yeah, so much. And there's just so much spirituality there. And Yes. And did you have any other ch- children or this was your only child? He's my only child, Manny. He's now living in Australia with his new baby. He's only yeah. 22, but he he just had a baby and he's now 
got dual citizenship in Australia. So I'm hoping after COVID dies down and they open up the border more, I'll be able to go and- And hold your little, you have your little, you have a grandchild, right? Yeah, a grandson, yeah. Well, I think we have more in common than just remote viewing. Yeah, well, how many people can say they can see their- their Child in the Philippines and they're blonde. I mean, I'm not blonde anymore, but I was once. <laughs> That's crazy. That is crazy. So I think we're going to wind our show down on this happy note of us both sharing, uh, getting pregnant. And, it, you know, to me, it was magic because they said I couldn't have it. Oh, and also I had just had cervical cancer. So half my cervix was cut out. And so within six months of that, I'm in the Philippines conceiving this child who's been a blessing just like yours. You know, they're just special guys. Yeah, I, I think there is something about the genetics, the Philippine genetics, it, it's strong, you know. Yes. I would say anyone who's having trouble conceiving, go- Take go a little trip there. over there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I wanna thank you so much. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm new here launching this, this, this podcast, but I am having the time of my life that I feel like I'm on the path I'm supposed to be on. And I don't know what's going to come of it, but if any one of these shows helps just even one person that listens to it, then I feel we've done our, our job. So I'm well, so I, grateful. I know that just anybody even just hearing you talk for 30 seconds is going to feel better and have a better day. So I'm sure you've already accomplished your goal. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again in another uh, form. Maybe it's not yeah. on Zoom. Oh, and I sent you a thank you gift. I don't know if it arrived yet. No, I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm very excited. Oh, I sent it to everyone the same day and the ones in New York got it, but I hadn't heard from Stephen Schwartz and I haven't heard from you. So let me know. I have the postal receipt. Yeah. Let me know that you got it. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks. All right, you take care. Take care and great success with the new book or what I'm going to call the handbook to ARV. <laughs> so I want to just tell our audience, um, we've really enjoyed having Deborah here today. And you know that you can find all her books, her information, they'll all be listed on our description. So you can contact her. You know, you've heard that she has a website. I'm going to just let you know right now in case you have a pen. It's DebraLynnKatz.com. That's D-E-B-R-A-L-Y-N-N-K-A-T-Z.com. And on her website, you'll find also other information and shows and things that she's been on. So remember, listeners, subscribe, like, and share a small, medium, at large podcast. Find us on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Facebook, and all other media platforms. Have a wonderful day. And remember, stories can heal. So share your story today. Love you all. Bye.